Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is Episode 6, the early edition of G News for April 2018, in which we'll be discussing A Quiet Place and other horror films, as well as returning shows like Winona Earp and new ones like Reverie, among other things. And we're very excited to share with you our bonus item, which is Daniel Curlin's interview with Victor Fresco, the creator of Santa Clarita Diet, which is a show that's really taken off on Netflix. So that'll be something to look forward to. But we've got a lot of great news and things that I can't wait to dive right in with. So let's go ahead and talk about this month's news. All right, Mike, while Halloween might be six months away, it's never too early to get cozy and let (laughs) one of the dozens of great horror films out there scare the bejesus out of you. And when you're in the mood for one of those evenings, look no further than one of the big three streaming services. So Den of Geek has put together a list of 23 great horror flicks currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Man, that seems like a lot. Have you noticed also that Den of Geek is running other lists from Netflix, one from Hulu, and they've been running these lists of great horror films for a while now, and this is just the latest one, so I hope they keep this up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a wonder anybody ever leaves the house. But <laughs> that said, I'm a huge Cloverfield franchise fan, so what list would be complete with at least one of these films on it? So 10 Cloverfield Lane follows the story of a woman involved in an automobile accident in Louisiana only to find herself chained to the wall in the basement of a recluse played by John Goodman. Now, of course, he claims he's only keeping her confined to protect her from a coming attack on the United States. Yeah, okay. Yeah, John Goodman can play this role very well. It reminds me of his role in The Big Lebowski, where he's just got that creep factor going on. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, some of you may say that lists like these are overpopulated with Stephen King adaptations, and while that statement may certainly have some merit, 1976's thriller Carrie clearly deserves consideration. Oh, for sure. Carrie's classmates make fun of her. Her religious nut of a mother tortures her endlessly. And come on, who can forget the bucket of blood that ends up getting poured on her at the prom? (laughs) Now, I came to the zombie genre rather late in life. And as I set out to educate myself in the field, one of my early selections was, of course, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Shot in black and white, Night of the Living Dead manages to cover a lot of ground amidst the intense gore of a survival tale that doubles as a metaphor for the Vietnam War. So if you're in the mood for horror, check out these and 20 other films of this Den of Geek list put together by Elizabeth Rain and Alex Bojelad. 23 best horror movies on Amazon Prime right now. Yeah, and that list is growing. In fact, I think one of the recent horror lists that Den of Geek put out talks about the best horror movies of 2018 and there are already so many (laughs) and in fact i want to go ahead and talk about one that just came out that is taking 
the world by storm. And that is a quiet place. Now, did you ever watch The Office? I'm going to guess no. Oh, no. I've seen it all. I okay, even, even have uh, all the episodes on DVD. <laughs> I was going to say, okay. Well, thank goodness, because uh, John Krasinski, who plays Jim on The Office, has switched from comedic actor to horror film director. <laughs> and this is something that should be familiar to people who watched as Jordan Peele won the best screenplay for his film, Get Out, in the horror genre. And he also, of course, is known for his comedic acting. So this is something where John Krasinski perhaps wanted to break away from how audiences perceived him because of The Office. But he did just that with this stunning directorial debut in A Quiet Place, which is his horror movie about a family living in rural post-apocalyptic New York who must live out their lives in near silence thanks to a recent infestation of lightning-fast, lethal monsters who hunt entirely based on sound. Oh, man, I love it. And they have to sign to each other and stuff like that. It's great. And now this high concept genre film is high in its box office returns too. And David Crow has written a nice article talking about its box office returns, which were quite surprising. It opened with an estimated $50.4 million, which makes this small budget indie horror movie basically tripling its official budget in three days. It had a three day opening weekend. Now compare that to the four day opening of ready player one, much more of a blockbuster that took an extra day to get to the $53 million mark, just over what a quiet place made in three days. So ready player one is a movie with an estimated production cost of somewhere between a hundred and $150 million compared to a quiet places, $17 million budget. So it kind of tells you that I think audiences, especially through word of mouth, are really latching onto these uh, indie horror films. Yeah, and it tells us John Krasinski is going to get a chance to direct another movie. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but before I get into where you can find this article, I want to share with you a quick clip from Den of Geeks intrepid red carpet interviewer Bevan, who caught up with Krasinski at the New York premiere of his movie. And he said something very interesting that you and I talk about, Dave, sometimes about the riskiness of this movie, but how it kind of respects the audience. And I think this statement is very true. You know, uh, one of the heads of marketing of a movie that I did actually said the biggest misconception that Hollywood has is that audiences are stupid. They actually want to be challenged and they don't want a lot of information fed to them. So I took a chance on this one and, and didn't give a lot, but just enough. And people have been really responding well. So I think he's right. I mean, audiences want to be challenged. They don't want watered down crap. And I think if we continue to see some of these kind of movies succeed, then we'll get to see some really smart offerings. Yeah. I mean, there's so much out there. I think these uh, creators of this content have finally woken up to that fact that, you know, we are smart. We do want smart fare. So. so if you want to read more about this particular box office smash, you can read the article by David Crow called A Quiet Place Box Office is Extremely Loud. Cool. Now, in keeping with the horror genre, after a sophomore season in which Winona Earp found itself without its lead actor for much of the season, as Melanie Scrifano's pregnancy prevented her from appearing in a significant portion of the season, sci-fi supernatural drama stands poised to return to the search for the demon that placed a curse on the Earp family to begin with. And though there's still no firm return date, Winona Earp will likely continue telling its story in the summer of 2018. 
Now, fans of Lost Girl and Dark Matters' Zoe Palmer will be thrilled to hear that Ms. Palmer will be joining the cast in a guest role. And she's set to play Jolene, who, according to Sci-Fi Wire, is described as a fun-loving friend who enjoys karaoke, baking for her best buddies, and creating mayhem wherever she goes. (laughs) She's also smart, knows a secret or two, and if you don't watch out, she'll either steal your partner or your heart. Now, I've got breaking news, Dave. Okay. (laughs) Anna Silk is also coming on for a guest role. Wow. If you can believe that. I maintained this article that you're talking about for Den of Geek and Klexicon 2018 just happened. And it was announced that Anna Silk would be playing a role and her name will be Kevin, named after Winona or podcast host Kevin Batchelder. (laughs) I kid you not. (laughs) I love it. Now, uh, fans of Lost Girl know that Anna Silk has pretty much been out of the industry other than certainly doing some cons after the birth of her child. So it sounds like perhaps her child's old enough that she can get away (laughs) and get back to acting, which is great news. Now, Docubus reunion. (laughs) There you go. Now there's also word that Winona's long dead mother will make an appearance and will be portrayed by an actress that many of us first noticed when she starred in the title role of the 1985 adaptation of Anne of Green Gables. Megan Follows, a Toronto-born actress, is probably better known to contemporary audiences from her four-season regular role on the CW's historical series, Rain, and recurring appearances on Heartland. But here, she's set to help combat the also-resurrected Bolshar Cloody, an 1880s-era purgatory sheriff. <laughs> That's quite an 1880s kind of name, too. <laughs> right. Now, in another call back to Lost Girl, of course, showrunner Emily Andres spoke to the Calgary Herald about Winona's new mission now that her pregnancy and that of Scrifano is no longer in the picture. We have a lead character who is essentially a superhero who has had to give up her baby in order to protect her, says Andres. What that leads us back to is more fierce and determined, even kamikaze type Winona Earp. She is back in fighting form. She's drinking her whiskey and firing her guns, but now she has this thing haunting her. And I, I think fans of the show are certainly looking forward to Winona making a return to form, so to speak. But for much more on the return of sci-fi's hit series, Winona Earp, check out the Den of Geek Hub, as Michael said, maintained by him, titled Winona Earp Season 3 Release Date, Casting News, and more. And I definitely have to get in that little bit about <laughs> Anna Silk. But I want to move on with a little story, another one by David Crow, because he put out this one that really intrigued me about how Rogue One, a Star Wars story, was apparently saved by Tony Gilroy, who came into the project late to do some reshoots, but apparently was much more extensive. It was rumored that things were going on, but it was much more extensive than maybe even people thought. So David Crow, I want to quote him and from his article, he says, it is an understatement to say that Tony Gilroy came to the project Rogue One, a Star Wars story late. The film had, in fact, already been shot and a director's cut of sorts had been delivered to Disney. Hence why the displeased studio was so eager to bring in someone like Gilroy, the writer of the first four Jason Bourne movies, to oversee some in-depth last minute reshoots. And in the aftermath, we know that this entire ending for Rogue One was reconceived such that Gilroy actually earned a writing credit on the film, as well as millions of dollars, of course. 
And what happened to kind of blow this news out of the water is that Tony Gilroy went on the Brian Koppelman podcast and finally spoke out about his role in the film. And though he kind of hedges his bets a little bit in terms of trying to keep it close to the vest, he actually made it clear that he rescued Rogue One from what he viewed as a mess. And that's a direct quote that was scaring the upper echelon of Disney. And he did so with relative ease because he really doesn't have any specific love or reverence for star Wars as a franchise or as a brand. So he kind of was able to rest easy. He talked about how he was able to sleep every night, unlike on some of his own projects because he wasn't getting the director's credit. So whether it succeeded or failed, it wouldn't necessarily fall on his shoulders, but at the same time he describes working on such a high profile project like star Wars as like driving a Ferrari and boasts that he was throwing strikes each and every day of the reshoot. So let's take a quick listen to just part of his carefully couched conversation with Brian Koppelman. If you look at Rogue, all the difficulty with Rogue and all the confusion of it and all the, the, the people that, and all the smart people and all the mess. And in the end, when you get in there, it's actually very, very simple to solve because you sort of go, oh, this is a movie where folks just look, everyone's going to die. So it's a movie about sacrifice. So, well, they were just in so much terrible, terrible trouble that all you could do is, 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 is improve their position. Yeah, I just think that's very interesting. I mean, the fact that he supposedly earned this screenplay credit kind of speaks to how much influence he had over that. And it kind of makes you wonder, what was the original version like and why was it so terrible? Because Rogue One is one of my favorite Star Wars movies that's come out. Yeah, and it also has a little bit to say about Disney, I would think, that they balked at giving him credit. Yeah, well, that's true, too. Yeah. But it also is like we keep seeing this. I mean, certainly the solo Star Wars story is also having similar problems with, you know, switches and directors and things like that. But Gilroy vaguely referred to adding a purity to the characters and making sure everyone focused on that theme of sacrifice that we heard in that clip, since everybody was going to die anyway, to kind of explain why they weren't in Star Wars Episode Four. Because, you know, if you think about it, they should have been part of the rebellion otherwise. But I just thought it was a really nice behind the scenes peek at some of the rescuing that has to go on sometimes with these huge projects that have multiple people working on them, both on the script side and also on the directing side. All right, cool. Well, let, let's take a trip even further back in the past, because for many of us, the 1993 release of Cyan's graphic adventure video game Mist changed the way we viewed gaming as console and PC opportunities exploded on the scene. And in celebration of the 25th anniversary of Myst, developer Cyan Inc. has revealed their plans to release a special collection of every Myst game. Oh, wow. Now, Cyan started a Kickstarter campaign with a goal of just under $250,000 to fund the development of remastered versions of its classic games. So all seven Myst games, Myst, Riven, Exile, Revelation, End of Ages, Yuru, and Real Myst Masterpiece Edition are slated to receive a refresh, but we Macintosh users are apparently going to be left out in the cold since As the games usual. will be updated <laughs> to run only on Windows 10. But look, we, I, we understand. Yeah, for sure. But that definitely has a fond place in my memory. Myst and Riven both really enjoyed those in my late teens, early 20s. Yeah, I still have the discs. Of course, I don't have a computer that I can play them <laughs> on. So, Now, users shouldn't look for any major changes to the Cyan lineup. A $49 pledge gets you digital versions of all seven games, and the top tier, $1,000, 
earns the person pledging the digital copies the DVD version of every game, a mist book, an animated LCD book panel, digital mist book extras, Gens pen and inkwell, and the original Riven concept sketch art. Now, that tier has already sold out and is no longer available to backers, but certainly that's good news that they've met their goal. So if you're looking to take a trip down memory lane to relive all those agonizing moments, flipping switches and pushing buttons, check out Matthew Bird's article, Missed Anniversary Collection Includes Every Game in the Series at denofgeek.us. No, that's super enticing. And I'm glad you were able to squeeze in a gaming uh, feature in this particular podcast because... I like giving them their due, and it reminds me fondly of my video game playing days, which are behind me, unfortunately. But uh, I want to go back to TV for a minute here. That's our (laughs) forte. And there's a show I'm really looking forward to, and Joseph Baxter has put out the article recently that was announced just earlier this week that Reverie, NBC's sci-fi drama, has just gotten a release date. It was announced that the Sarah Shahi vehicle would be premiering on Wednesday, May 30th at 10 p.m. on NBC. Now, Sarah Shai, if you are not familiar with her, she's one of my favorite characters from Person of Interest. And that's one that you didn't get into, Dave, but had definitely had its sci-fi flair as well. Yeah, I only saw the pilot, and I enjoyed it. it you know, there's just so much. I just couldn't add it to my lineup. <laughs> and her character doesn't come until much later anyway, but you definitely would have enjoyed her, and you'll probably get a chance to enjoy her here. In fact, we might even talk about this show on the June Sci-Fi Fidelity, who knows? But the grounded thriller basically follows Mara Kent, played by Sarah Shahi, who's a former hostage negotiator and an expert on human behavior who has now become a college professor teaching that exact subject after facing an unimaginable personal tragedy dealing with her sister and her niece. But when she's brought in to save ordinary people who have lost themselves in a highly advanced virtual reality program, in which you can literally live your dreams. She finds that in saving others, when they get kind of locked into this virtual world, she may actually have discovered a way to save herself. And part of that is starting to see visions of her niece. And she starts to wonder if she's real or if it's part of this other reality. So you start to question what's real and what's not real, which is always kind of fun in a show like that. But Dave, guess who runs the company that, offers this virtual reality escape service. <laughs> Tell me. It's Dennis Haysbert of 24 fame. The president. President Palmer. <laughs> exactly right. He plays Charlie. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Antana, a former police chief who had Mara as one of his finest detectives. And now I don't know how this path takes place from police chief to CEO in charge of this virtual world, but he brings her on to sort of help, I guess, his customers. I hope I don't have that little factoid wrong, but I watched an interview with Dennis and Sarah talking about the show and it, and that's the description that Dennis gave. So I can't wait to check out the show. It sounds really interesting. Now, Reverie is the creation of its executive producer, Mickey Fisher. What? Yeah. Who's known for shows such as Extant and Mars on Nat Geo, both shows which we enjoyed podcasting about. And he's joined in the capacity of executive producer by John Colette Sarah, who's known as the director of films like The Shallows and Run All Night. But you and I enjoyed speaking with Mickey Fisher about Extant back in the day. Really great guy. And uh, this sounds like he's got another great sci-fi concept coming our way. Cool. Yeah. Uh, he was very gracious when whenever we needed something from him. Now, Fisher couldn't have timed his creation more perfectly, of course, with the recent success of films like Ready Player One, which banks heavily on this virtual reality concept and how whole sections of society can lose themselves in this other world. And then more critically, the issue of VR and its dangers was addressed in a recent episode of Black Mirror called USS Callister, in which a virtual world developer traps his co-workers in a Star Trek-like world of his own design, where he is essentially God. <laughs> and Joseph Baxter does mention that parallel in his article. So if you want to check out more, read Reverie, NBC sci-fi drama gets release date. All right. I may have to, I'm certainly going to have to add that one to my list, at least for the pilot. And then we'll, we'll see from there. <laughs> All right. And I don't know if you ever enjoyed the show. I zombie Dave. I have not this concept of a comedy undead show already met success with that program. But now what's taking the Netflix viewership by storm is Santa Clarita diet which is a Drew Barrymore vehicle. And apparently she's quite good in it. <laughs> it's a family comedy that kind of explores the added ingredient of her being undead and having to eat flesh and lots of murders and mayhem and, and fun times. <laughs> so <laughs> sounds great, right? <laughs> fun times for the family. <laughs> and uh, Daniel Curland, who specializes in comedy TV for Den of Geek, got to talk to Victor Fresco, who's executive producing the show about Santa Clarita diet and a lot of other topics, including one that I'll mention when we, when we get to the end of this interview, because I think it ends on just a really high note. So here's Daniel Curland talking to Victor Fresco. Netflix has been able to cultivate such a successful slate of original programming because they approach the platform with a relentless energy. I mean, it feels like every other week there's a new show or movie that drops on the service. In addition to the wealth of available content, Netflix also succeeds in its ability to attract top-notch talent both in front and behind the camera. In the case of Netflix's Santa Clarita Diet, that's true in both respects. Santa Clarita Diet comes from the bonkers mind of Victor Fresco, who is also responsible for such memorable, insane television comedies as Andy Richter Controls the Universe and Better Off Ted. His latest program truly lets the writer's creativity run wild as he expertly crafts a sweet, loving family sitcom that also involves the undead, super-secret cults and supernatural forces, and a whole lot of murder. The first season of Santa Clarita Diet was able to get many people's attention and provide a winning vehicle for its stars Drew Barrymore and Timothy Oliphant, but the show's second 
seventh season beautifully ups its game and really comes into its own. The show has never been more hilarious or surprising, and this is suddenly a comedy that you really want to pay a lot of attention to. In honor of the show's second season, recently hitting Netflix, we chat with the show's creator and showrunner, Victor Fresco, about the show's evolution, what's new this year, where the bloody family comedy might be headed, and of course, ALF. First of all, how did you approach this new season of the show? Like, did you learn anything from the first season that made you, like, want to make this year feel any different than the previous one? Yeah, I mean, I think you learn, like, children, you learn from your first one. And then you're doing even a better job on your second, or worse sometimes. But I felt like the things that worked on the show, which we lean into in the second season, are the core Sheila-Joel love relationship, which is like the cement, I think, that holds the story together. You know, yeah. people think of it as a show about the undead. I think of it as a love story. It has, obviously, other elements to it, but it, it, at, at its core, it's really a love story, which we knew going in, but it, to see their chemistry work makes us, you know, really want to lean into that or really comfortable and confident leading into that. And the other thing that I felt worked well in the first season is the season takes place in a pretty short amount of time, I think in about 17 days. Yeah. The first season. So each episode is almost a, a one day. And that allows us to have a lot of urgency and drive. There's always something going on that's pressing that needs to be done. And the second season is very much like that also. Yeah, I also like, too, that, like, in spite of all the heightened stuff that goes on in the show, like, you still make a point of having Joel and Sheila deal with their real estate jobs as well. Do you enjoy, like, figuring out those kind of simpler stories, too, in addition to the bigger stuff? Like, do you see that aspect getting progressively phased out as the show goes on, or do you think it's important to keep the show grounded, so to speak? Yeah, well, that is the challenge, I think, is to make those other stories, and we do this in the second season, you know, the real estate stories, or they are a couple that's in business together and they have to make money and earn a living and all of that. And that's part of the fun of the show is that they go from life and death situations to the mundane life in the suburb kind of situation. Right. And the challenge is to keep the suburb situation, you know, interesting. And I think it can be done because it's against the backdrop of the craziness that they have to deal with to navigate their lives. But yeah, that, that is a challenge, I think, is to keep that element of it. Interesting, the stakes aren't as high. Right. In a house, the stakes aren't as high as are they going to get caught by the police? So our job is to try and make the stakes as high or make of course, it as challenge, yeah. I guess just kind of off that too, like, I think you guys do a good job at balancing the show's, like, violence and extreme nature with its sense of humor too. Like, do you want to try and top yourselves in that department at all? I mean, in the first season, you have a bunch of really crazy set pieces and, like, that vomit scene in the pilot, obviously. Do you kind of just take it as it goes or are you intentionally, like, let's try and do something huge this season? Yeah, that's a challenge too. I mean, I always felt like the real challenge is not to top ourselves but to keep putting the show back in its box doesn't keep getting too big. As I said to Netflix when I pitched it, we're never going to see tanks in the streets and a zombie outbreak. You know, I never want to get that big. But if you're not careful, you can get that big very quickly. So to us, the trick is, and I think we did a good job in this in the second season, 
too, is to keep it small and real, but keep the stakes high, but without it expanding into the world and making it too big. Yeah. It's hard, right? If you get into the business of trying to top yourself every week, you're going to, I think, you explode your show very quickly. So to me, the challenge is trying to actually keep it small every week or keep it real. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear that because I do think this season really does build on the mythology in a lot of ways. You do see that there are like little corners of the universe, the supernatural Reddit peeper that Zachary Knighton is a part of that know about this stuff that's going on too. Let's talk a little on just the stuff with like the red balls, growing legs. Do you know where all that stuff is headed in the end? Yeah, I mean, we do, you know, we never know exactly where it's headed, like by season five. We know in season three where it's headed, and uh-huh. what, as we call him, Mr. Ballegs will represent, and what that means. We know that Paul character that the Zack Knight plays will be back in season three, and he represents a threat to our Hammonds. That is an interesting threat, because he's part of the mythology of that world. It's not a cop, and it's not a doctor. Yeah. It's something that's in that very specific to that world. And so we do know as we break these stories, we always have an idea of where it's going. We don't know with 100% certainty. We're now talking about season three, so we're starting to get more certainty. But yeah, both that character and the ball with legs will be featured in the third season. And, you know, the ball with legs or growing legs at first for us just seemed like a really interesting, weird, cool idea. Yeah. And that we would also, like the Hammonds, want to know what the fuck that means. Right, right. So without answering it too quickly, it's like, oh my God, what the hell is this? So, and the fact that he came from inside her is interesting. So mm-hmm. we'll explore that a little bit more in the next season also. And I love that you showed that they've frozen it so like something different is going on with theirs and you don't know if whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You, yeah, you right. work so much on just like comedies, which albeit have been pretty creative comedies, but is it fun to be a part of a show that has this deeper mythology and like gets to play that game too now? It is fun. I mean, it is a very different muscle for me and for most of my writers here because as you say, coming out of comedy, especially now, or comedy where mm-hmm. every episode is a freestanding episode and this is incredibly serialized and as we go it becomes even more serialized we have like five or six story elements in the air in each episode that we're tracking for the whole season so mm-hmm. it's much more complex than I'm used to it's more challenging and that makes it more interesting it's slower the process of figuring out stories is smaller because if you do a freestanding episode of it's their wedding anniversary and Joel didn't get her a present, that's in, in many ways an easier kind of story to break than when you get to episode five, you've got five or six elements that you're servicing, yeah. including whatever the A story is. So it is more it's higher risk, higher reward, I would say. Uh-huh. So it's trickier, but it is more exciting for us. Well, and in, in many ways too, it falls back on that analogy Joel brings up about having many balls in the air as a juggler and having four wives and yeah, 18 right. children. Yeah, right, right. Um, and it's not unlike real life. I mean, in real of life. Of course, yeah. You know, you and I every week don't have one story that we're working on. This is we're true, yeah. A part of a timeline where we have eight things going on and at any moment one of them can turn into a crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah. It does feel a little more like real life to me. 
Cool. You also bring back Gary in a highly unusual capacity as a talking head this season. Was that supposed to just be like a one-off return that grew into something bigger or like what? I love how much he's like a part of the family by the end of the season and like arguably Joel's best friend by the end. Right. Yeah. So Nathan Fillion was going to be a one-off in the first season and we thought this is she kills him. It wasn't written with Nathan in mind. It was just written with a character, Uh Gary, and she's going to kill Gary. And then we really loved Nathan because he's really funny and great. Then when we came back in the second season, we just thought, well, what if he's not dead? Because he was really fun to work with and he'd be really fun. And this is a show we love doing stories that are unique to the show. And this is something only our show could do and bring him back. So we elected to. And when we thought we would bring him back, we did think it would be for the whole season. We knew it wasn't going to be in every episode. Right. We knew at the beginning that if he were to come back and how he was discovered, I believe in episode two, that would influence the rest of the season. And then we created an arc for him and Joel from being adversarial to being friends. And mm-hmm. you know, we loved it. We ended up loving that character. Yeah, and it's so much fun. A lot. It's, an, it's an odd thing. Yeah. We're hoping he'll be back in season three also. Cool. Chris and Krista, too, are like this really perfect, bizarro version of Joel and Sheila, I think. It's glad to see that you don't kill those guys off, too. Talk a little on their development, I guess, and if you think they'll be around in the future. Yeah, we design those characters are like everything that Joel and Sheila want to be. Like, they're okay. more successful. They're doing what Joel and Sheila do, but on a higher level, more competitive, just a little more together. And then we like this backstory that in this town of Santa Clarita, they all kind of came of age together and never liked each other and are very competitive. And it's that they're like children still. Mm-hmm. Those relationships that you have in high school are still the same relationships you have as adults. And so we had them in an episode and loved them and then brought them back because they're so fun together. And Maggie Lawson and Joel McHale are just so really funny yeah. and brilliant together. And even look a little like a version of Joel. Definitely. Yeah. We do want to bring them back also in season three. Cool. Funny people. There's, yeah, such a good energy between them. I really love the note that the season ends on with this whole, like, religious kind of thing with Deputy Anne, but was there ever a point Uh when you did consider maybe putting these guys on the run for season three and, like, mixing things up even more with the show, or, like, did you always know that'd be the end point? Yeah, I mean, I think in theory we could take them on the run one day. I wasn't ready for that yet. I felt like after two seasons, the stories of Santa Clarita hadn't been played out. Yeah. I did feel like we wanted to keep them back at home base for season three, not necessarily get them out. Although I think that's a possibility, certainly down the road. So I never, I like the idea that they might have to go on the run. Yeah. I want to really burn our home base down. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And then we like these guest cast around us, which you would have to also burn through. That's true. Yeah. I guess just two, Victor, do you have a favorite episode or scene from the season that really stands out to you or, like, you're particularly proud of? I think the whole, I'm happy with the season. I thought the whole season went well. Yeah. Some moments that I think, you know, in 205, when they set up their kill room and those two gentlemen show up, they're expecting one person. Yeah. You know, that's like a really fun scene to me of just their kind of ethical, moral dilemma. It's great, yeah. You know, the practicality, can we kill two people? And then this person is challenged, Mm -hmm. you know, in a wheelchair. What are the implications of that? A lot of that, to me, is where the show lives, on these, like, 
smaller moments of them trying to, this is new to them, even in season two, that's only about three weeks old. Yeah, yeah. So the whole thing is still new. And to try and navigate that is, to me, the really fun piece of the show. You know, it gets back to the idea of what would you really do? Yeah. Absolutely. And those kinds of themes and discussions are like, I, I find the most rewarding to write and just, I think, are the funniest to watch also. Definitely. Cool. There's a lot of tension in it because it's going to end in this, obviously, this horrible, brutal event. Yes. Yeah. Last question, Victor, and this changes gears a little bit, but I'm a huge ALF fan, and I know that one of your first writing oh. jobs was on that show, and that you even co-wrote the final episode, which is honestly one of, like, the darkest finales you'll come across, I think. <laughs> um yeah. yeah. With the trend of like old shows seeing reboots and like Netflix even supporting a number of these revivals, if Alf were to come back in some modern context, would you be interested in consulting on it in some capacity? I mean, I really enjoyed my experience. That was my first job. Right. Uh, was Alf, and it was a dark end because, of course, we thought that the show was going to come back. Uh -huh. so we didn't anticipate that when we wrote the season finale and he gets caught, that that would be the series finale. I think uh, Paul Fusco, who created the show, and Tom Patchett felt like a fifth season was certainly going to happen. It was back in the day, I think he was getting a 21 share or something. But uh -huh. So now it feels very dark. Because <laughs> it, it's so dark, yeah. The series ends with him getting caught. It's terrible. But yeah, I mean, I loved Alf. I would... Uh, depending on what I'm doing, I, yeah. I, I would be always interested. That was Very a cool. show that I worked on, and it was a really fun show to do. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, now, Dave, I don't know if you ever saw ALF, but it had such a horribly macabre ending that wasn't supposed to be its series finale, where it ended with to be continued, and ALF's fate was up in the air. A horrible ending for a comedy show. <laughs> did you ever see it? I, I did not. I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I, I never actually watched an episode. Uh, it's kind of become infamous in, in some circles. So uh, I'm glad Daniel Curland was able to squeeze in that last question. So thank you very much, Daniel, for sharing that with us. And I hope you enjoyed a lot of the features that we shared with you today. But that's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the April 2018 late edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite television shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.